Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What's Next, The Future of Schools. Beyond excited to share with you Laura McBain from the Stanford D School. Such an incredible interview. However, like all of us in the start of 2021, we did have some technical difficulties with Zoom when we recorded this. So we did our best to do the best we could with editing. So bear with us and enjoy the episode. second. All right, and welcome back to another episode of What's Next, The Future of School. And uh, we're excited to have an incredible guest, and I'll let David Culverhouse make the introduction. Yeah, I'd like to introduce Laura McBain, who's with us tonight. Laura is a co-director, 12 Lab at the Stanford D School. And just going off script a little bit, I've been able to sit in on some of her sessions, and she is absolutely incredible. Her focus is on how human-centered design can be used to provide equitable and innovative educational experiences that will help all students thrive in a changing world. In this role, she leads design challenges in education. She designs new learning experiences for educators and serves as an adjunct professor at Stanford University. One of our current design challenges focuses on how we might design new learning experiences to help educators understand and utilize future thinking and leadership to improve education, which I just love. Formerly, she was the principal of two high-tech high schools, designed and led the SE, and has taught middle and high school classes in public charter and comprehensive schools. She also has designed and led led a global adult learners focus on designing for equity and deeper learning. And Laura has a bachelor's from Miami University, Oxford in Ohio, and a master, uh, a master's from Harvard. And we are just very happy to have you with us this evening. It is such an honor. I am such big fans of each start the new year off with a conversation uh, with each of you and of course the folks that are listening today. Um, thank you for inviting And just so you know, we have questions for you and Glenn's going to kick us off. But um, if you've ever seen me in a chat, we have a tendency to kind of go on to um, different areas. So um, yeah, we're going to hit it here and uh, Glenn's going to kick us off. Yeah, so first and Foremost, as a designer, what are some ways that you've been involved in designing abilities in education? Um, so the design abilities in education are thinking about mm -hmm. design. You know, one of the things I will say um, is that there is, you know, I, I will say personally before I jump into thinking about that, you know, I think every educator in our classrooms, we design our assessments, right? We design the culture in which our young people interact. And so, you know, about design abilities versus design thinking is this idea that how do we cultivate becoming really great designers? And so we've been spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, the abilities of becoming a designer and what those might be versus just understanding the design process. And so a lot of our work recently, and I know we're having some tech issues. I see my friend, Robert Bolt. I love him. Good to see you, Robert, um, is... <laughs> is this question of like, what are the abilities of being a designer? And we think, you know, and there, we at the D School think there's about eight of them. Um, and they center on different issues 
whether it's like experimentation, learning from learning with people and others. And then one of the big ones, of course, is thinking about how we navigate ambiguity. And so one of the reasons why we thought about the design abilities and actually why we actually design our courses at Stanford to address the eight design abilities that exist within education are really to think about this concept that we're all designers and we all have these abilities that we can pull on and lean into at different moments in our life, whether it's in a, a classroom or whether you're sitting at home or dealing with tech issues as we are right now trying to prototype different solutions. And so designers, we're all designers, right? And so I think one that we're trying to situate ourselves at the D school is everyone is a designer and they happen to do design projects. We're always thinking when we're doing design. And so part kind of framing is this idea of not necessarily moving away from design thinking because we're doing it, but really what are the capacities that all of us need to cultivate within ourselves become better innovative, inclusive opportunities with and for young people. And so I can say a lot about the design abilities and what we're doing on those, but that's kind of the overarching framing of it. And I think we see that now, um, you know, especially in the future and what's going on in the world today, right? With the stuff that's going on in DC is how we can really cultivate and unambiguous and, and stressful moments. And that is a design ability as well as making sense. Um, I know David spends a lot of time thinking about futures thinking, which I love and read everything he writes um, and sense-making and navigating ambiguity is a key stone ability of designers. And it's probably never been more important um, than today and this last year. Oh, so incredible. I, and, and, and it's so hard because when, when you look right now, our systems are showing us how we're struggling with design, I think. And so I wanted to kind of lead into this question. This one goes back to, uh, I don't know if you remember, um, a couple of years back at Design Camp, I sat in on one of your workshops. Um, I don't know if you remember, I, I was in the back, I always kind of just going to stay quiet. And, um, and, and I really loved it. And, and what I saw there was that shift from the design thinking hexagons to the eight design abilities that you talked about that day. Can you describe that shift a little bit and how you see those abilities unfolding in the educational setting? Yeah, I mean, I, one, I think, and it goes back to this idea of all design, but also one of the things that I think, you know, one of the great things about design thinking that we've seen at the D School is that we've articulated a process, this idea of empathy, um, and of course, ideation and defining the problem and prototyping and testing. Like that's a pretty known process. And one of the things that I think we at the D School believe is that is not, not the process, right? When we look at the process the way that most of us have been trained in it, it seems like it's a linear process, right? I do empathy work, I figure out the problem, I find a solution. And many of us who've been doing design work know that it's never as simple as that. It's never a simple step process for constantly ideating, we're constantly learning from people, we're constantly testing. And so one of the shifts that you're recognizing is also to move away from what I would consider like the Stanford, but helping people figure out what is their process of design? Where did they start? You know, what are the ways in which they can actually develop their own process? Um, one of the design abilities that we spend a lot of time on is thinking about designing our design work and 
you know, when we first started the call, I said, I got to change my background. And Glenn's like, no, no, there's post-its. And so what you're seeing behind me is like part of my designing, my design work of like this new offering. And I'm thinking about collaborators and I'm trying to make sense of a new field and the area in which I'm sitting so that I can actually just discover that it's space and that's design work, right? It didn't start with me just doing empathy work, although that is something we do all the time and we actively and, and intentionally do moments of that. But one of the things that we want to make clear is that as designers, especially at the D school, there are a lot of ways to do design, to do design thinking, and there are a lot of ways to describe it. You know, if you're in the music industry, you're working in, in cooking and, and um, other fields, you may not use the term testing or prototyping. You might say, I've got a rough draft and I want to get some feedback on it. And so part of our shift to be quite explicit is to really make sure the design is accessible to everyone, right? To use different words to allow people to make, to discover their own processes, because we all can do it. And we all have internal language that we use um, when we're learning with people, when we're understanding needs and when we're trying to come up with new ideas. So that's part of the shift a little bit from abilities um, to abilities from thinking is that we really want to make sure that we all have these abilities and we all can cultivate a process that works with our communities and the context in which we're in. Awesome, thank you. Well, good evening, Laura. Thanks for, thanks for joining us tonight. And um, it's been, it's been interesting to listen to you and, and, I, and I understand completely the, 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 the response relative to the stepping into design at different times and at different locations uh, within the process makes a lot of sense in that as well. Um, you know, the, the, the question we had for you next is, and I'm sort of going to answer it for you and ask it in a different way. The question was, is how do we prepare education stakeholders uh, to navigate a changing future? I'm guessing that you would probably could answer that in a single word by saying design. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to show, how, how do we get, you know, if you want to answer that question, it's fine, but how do we, and I'll add a second part to it. How do we, how do we get schools and school districts to adopt more of a design mindset and design approach? Mm -hmm. If there is this ambiguity that you're talking about, we all know that ambiguity is, the, is we're, we're certainly not at the moment, you know, if we're preparing educational stakeholders to navigate a future and ambiguity, what's the process, but if it's process, is design, then how do they get started? How do, they, how do we get this to be much more of, of something that's just five hexagons, you know, in a, in a really cool slide deck, but it becomes a meaningful, authentic process that schools actually can, can embrace and, and use to change their future? I love that question, David, because what happens in a school? Like, and I think particularly, um, we've been working, and I think David knows this, David Cleverhouse, that we worked this summer with about 300 schools, this, um, 300 educators this summer, about 36 schools who are thinking about what happens this fall, right? And design challenge. In fact, there are like 12 design challenges happening in schools right now around how we teach on online and how we engage with community and how we feed our young people, like how we get laptops to them. Each one of them are design challenges. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I think is really important is thinking about this idea of, of multiples or parallel prototyping. Um, I myself as a classroom teacher, as David did in my intro, I was a principal. And I will say one thing that I, I personally, were 
But we were not trained in like prototyping and testing lots of scenarios and lots of ways to like right. find the best way to teach kids. We find the thing and then we roll it out. It becomes like a linear process. Like we do some great research, of course, and we might do it, but we wonder sometimes what actually why it takes so long for fruition, right? Get, you know, really is hard to implement. And I think one of the insights that I have learned, you know, as an educator and a principal and a designer is that prototyping or parallel prototyping in small ways, low risk, does a couple things. One, it actually lets us know, are we doing the thing with the right thing with our community? Just because it's great on the internet, a lot of people are using may not be the right thing with my context, right? So we see it's I think the other piece that we think about with education is it gives us a lot of opportunity to fail. Um, and that's kind of a scary word in education because the risk is so high. And so, you know, for stakeholders or principals or um, superintendents, you know, we have these big initiatives. Yeah, there's not a lot, we talk about innovation a lot, like we have to be innovative, but to be innovative, we have to fail, right? We have to try a lot of things. And so to kind of answer your, question, David, I think part of it is thinking about an idea, like a low hanging fruit idea, right? That's something that's on the cusp, but you think is really interesting and try four different ways to achieve it. We do that as designer. And again, that's just parallel prototyping or four different approaches or four different strategies or four different ways to do it, whatever language you want to use to it, as opposed to just picking one and assuming that's the right path, right? That is the right direction. And so when we do these parallel prototypes, it gives us a lot, it checks our own assumption itself. It also allows us to test in a way that's not so low investment, right? And also lots of opportunities to iterate with folks actually can understand the process and have a buy-in of how the idea is gonna get out. And so to that extent, I think design, when we're prototyping in districts, it almost becomes a community organizing tool for innovation, for new ideas, because it's not the thing it's doing. We're trying lots of ideas and allowing everyone to play with it, to iterate on it and give feedback on it so that we all are invested in the path forward. Um, and so that, to me, I think that's part of the power of design and within schools or thinking about the future is all these different options um, that are possible. And ultimately what I think is interesting is you know, the idea that you think you have is the one when you actually do it. Sometimes it's like, oh, that's not what I meant to do. It's actually, oh, it's something else. And we get to be surprised, which is also the delightful. Okay. So I've got, just got a quick follow-up to that. And, and, and please give me your opinion on this in the, in the audience. So if, if we're looking at design as a, as a methodology for navigating ambiguity, and I love what you said about, you know, four different approaches in parallel prototyping. If, if you're talking about in starting in using design to, to create productive change, is that something that comes from the teacher on up? Or is it something that comes from a school or district on down? Or is it a combination? How do we negotiate the balance between a teacher that wants to make changes in his or her classroom using design versus a district that wants to accomplish that? And is there a happy marriage between the two? How do we negotiate that? That's a great question right because you know it's a classroom yeah I, I, say that again never mind i'm sorry go ahead <laughs> yeah it's just a great question of like where does it start right 
I mean, I think from a like strategic perspective, you wanted to start in lots of different places, right? The, the concept of like, we're going to try a lot of things should be at every level, whether it's the, you know, the superintendent office, the, you know, the principal's office, the teacher's office, and the teachers themselves with their students, right? I mean, and even students, of course, trying different ways to approach it. And I think there's a couple things that I think is really important that you mentioned is like, how do you just get the momentum going or the okayness to try these different approaches, right? Where, where's the right place to begin? And I think one thing that I have found is that it's really helpful to have a, like to some extent, um, it actually comes from the Billions Institute. Um, it's a question of kind of like a strategy of um, having small design teams um, that are diverse, whether it's, so what we've done to kind of, I would say build change, and this comes from spread and scale actually work around scaling change and large scale change, um, is that if you're trying to do initiatives, um, it's really helpful to have what they call like a spread strategy, which is a superintendent, a parent, a community member, a principal, a student, a teacher, and you know maybe two or three other people that are invested and having all of them co-design it and implement it within their context. And so that's an interesting way to get started a parallel prototyping and this idea of like, I'm gonna try something new, whatever it is, and I'm gonna try it within my context. Because a couple things happen. One, we get excited about change within, we have a sphere of influence that we have some control and sphere over, and we're not trying to do widespread. And then we're all uncomfortable about what it means to do different types of prototyping and parallel, parallel prototyping, if you will. Um, and we're doing it in a way that's not like large scale at that moment. And then the other thing that's really interesting is that when we think about kind of bringing and change into school districts or productive change, there also is this message of who's the messenger of the change, who do folks really want to be listened to, right? Or heard from. And I, I don't know about many of the folks on this call or others, but sometimes like teachers will listen to students or other teachers, you know, as much as of being a principal from a principal, I would love that my, maybe my teachers listen to me. They may didn't, they probably listened to their peer teacher more than they listened to me, you know, or believe what I have to say. And so there's this like lovely, like um, peer influence, if you will, that they, we can slowly bring in folks that are in similar roles and just that allow this change to come organically or productive change within the people that we regularly interact with is one way to think about it. Thank you. That was and a just to add that, uh, one of the things that's been happening in our county, and I, I like to call it getting, you know, the, getting the whole system in the, some of our districts have been pulling in their teachers, their paraeducators, uh, their parents, the community, Community college, the university people, their board members, uh, business people, city council, and they're all coming into the same room to say, so how do we make the system better? And you're really starting to see stand change at different levels and how that how they can work together to actually um, effectively make that work. So I love that whole part where you talked about getting, you know, the whole uh, getting the whole system into the room, which I think is incredibly important. Yeah. Sorry, I got caught off. You, I cut you off. From I was just saying that I, one of the things sorry, that we, <laughs> oh yeah, no worries. Um, one of the things that I've seen, and I think we've all learned in this moment, and I think this is kind of the upside if, or the design opportunity, if we think about, right, um, in this moment that we've all experienced during the pandemic, 
is that as educators, um, to some extent, we're siloed from communities, right? And in some ways we go out, out to the community, but what we've noticed this year is learning ecosystems have really evolved. Parents are teachers, right? After school folks are, are co-teachers and we are all in this process of education. And I think that's this question of like productive change. I think there's something really powerful about leveraging all the folks who have been re really invested and impacted by these moments of education and how do we design forward with them? You know, when schools begin to open, are we going to say, you know what, the school learning happens now just at school and we thinking about what happens at home? I don't think so, right? It's, we can never remove that insight again. You know, what happens when a student's, we will always know what it means for a student not to want to turn on their camera because of their home life, right? That's something we can never forget. That is an insight and an empathy moment. And that's gonna stay with many of us about what it means to design homework, right? Or learning experiences when they go home, we can't forget those things. And so I think as we go forward, we think about productive change, it's not just what we wanna, um, you know, what we hope to do, but who we hope to do it with. And I think to your point, David, what you're seeing in your district, which is great, is like people coming together. And my hope, you know, going, into this next year is like, can we maintain those groups and this momentum and this like investment in, in change and really getting all the voices in because they're here now, right? We see people showing up um, because they have to, right? Um, the stakes are high. And so how do we continue this kind of diverse design teams as we go forward um, into schools? You can tell. <laughs> well, you gave me a lot of uh, recall and a lot of memory from nine months ago when this all hit the fan. And as a news on island that had only been there for a month before it all happened, that's quickly what we did. We brought in every major stakeholder that people rely on, you know, chiefs of police, fire, you know, city managers, the whole nine yards, transportation. And then we start breaking down the different teams and our, our leaders came in and we, we invited the whole town in and, so, and then said, all right, every leader gets five minutes to talk about what we've done to this part so far, where we are, where we've been, where we are. And, where, and you know, from there we said, all right, we're gonna have a design process from here. So when you're going around, you're gonna look at it from the child and the staff perspective on how they're gonna be facing, how they're gonna be so forth. So you mentioned all these different types of community members coming together and that's incredible. And I think we've had a tremendous amount of um, leverage to build forward. So to, to your point, you know, how do you keep this going? So, you know, I know you've talked about what you've worked with some of the, but you know, what are you working on now or what types of, you know, preparing of schools are you doing for uncertain times to build educators? It's like future overhouse for a while about that, but you know, from the D school standpoint and your background, how do we keep this going? Like you mentioned earlier, that's your hope, you know, but how do you see designing moving forward to continue to build these futurists and so forth? I mean, one of the things that we're playing with, I think you'll see the posters in this background is like, this, I mean, and David knows this already, but like this idea of futures literacy of how do we think about imagination, sense-making, ambiguity um, as a critical piece of the type of ability. Um, in order to create, you know, more interesting and equitable futures. Um, and so a lot of the things that we've been playing with now is kind of thinking about a couple fronts. One is like building up this kind of uh, idea of futures literacy in K-12. What does this mean? Um, we have reading literacy. 
literacy. We have writing literacy probably dropped into this, but right before the holidays, there was a futures literacy summit sponsored by UNESCO um, that had 7,000 people attending around the globe. It was pretty big and not much representation from the US, which I thought was surprising, um, but it was around how we can think Think about the world from an economic perspective, a sustainability perspective, humanitarian perspective. And so when I think about education in particular, my hope, right, is when I think about young people in a classroom, bold imagination around sustainability, economic recovery, like those are design challenges that they can take on right now within their local context. And so, you know, design plays a really important role because we want to have this like two-faced, it's kind of a, it's hard to think about it because we think about long-term aspirational things. I'm looking at Glenn's beautiful background in the Bay Area and we know like, and what's really interesting about that background, I've walked there many times at Land's End, is that there's a lot of erosion there, right? There's a lot of stuff happening in your background actually from a sustainability perspective. And each one of those are actually design challenges that students can undertake. How do we actually create a sustainable ecosystem within um, within the San Francisco Bay? And so part of like this really important um, design work they're asking people to do as designers is to have this like long-term thinking impact, which is a key think, um, piece of futures literacy. But what is the long-term impact of my design work? The unintended consequences, the negative and positive outcomes of my design work. And so one of the things that we're really, really focused on at the D school is obviously helping people become to great designers, but also really interrogating what will might be the impact of my design work on the world, on young people, on the future. And so having people as designers think about like what bias, what implicit bias we bring to our design work that we all have, right? And what structures are we replicating? Um, what systems are getting put back in unintentionally, right, when we're doing design work. And so our work in the lab is really focused on, you know, helping people think about really powerful design projects um, around safety, technology, uh, obviously futures thinking, we're thinking about scale and spread in our lab, but ultimately thinking about impact, right, and really thinking about what are the implications of my work, right, on the world and on my community imprint, if you will, of design, because it all has one, right? Everything we do has an impact, an implication and an impact. And can we as designers and a whole design community get better at really understanding the implications of our design work? And I think that speaks to like David's first question about productive change. We have to think out how are these going to be impacting our communities unintentionally in order for us to move forward. And that is this like equally, um, fast process of prototyping and trying to figure it out and reflection, right? Which is slow and thoughtful and quiet and think and inward. And so part of the piece here that I'm playing with here and kind of roundabout answer here, but is really the combination of like really looking forward with this like bias toward action, right? And then this really slow and inward piece that's required of designers um, that we need to do. And that's partly why we focus on the abilities as well, because we need to experiment rapidly, but we also need time to really think about our work as well. And, and just, just going along with that, because you really made me think about when you look at what's going on with artificial intelligence and the ethical issues is that 
we've really just run forward. We're not really, it's kind of like, um, you know, I think of Jurassic Park. We didn't think whether or not we should do it. We just know we can do it. And so that part of coming back and being reflective of what are the choices that we're actually making? What are the impact? And what will that have not only on the world of work, but just on people's personal lives and professional lives is, you know, such a deep issue that needs to be considered. And, and it feels almost like it's running away from us before we can kind of start to pull it back. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it really made me think about that. But, I mean, um, yeah, I've been thinking, I will say, about makerspaces, for example. I don't know if y'all are long-term fan of makerspaces. And David, the question that we've been playing with, too, is in makerspaces, we're so excited about building. We have to teach the coding, the thing. And I think that's great. Like, as a designer and um, at the D school, we have make. You got to make stuff. Like, there's an important piece. Um but at the same time, there we don't. I don't remember being in a makerspace to answer your question. Like, should we have made this? Like, did we do? And I wonder a lot about you know thinking about myself and all of us maybe 15 years ago when makerspaces were going crazy and we're all building them, and we had to make this thing. Did we bring it? Could we have built, had a moment to have the question that you're asking? Is like, yes, we can make this, but should we? And those, I think, are the key questions when I think about AI or any kind of technology or futures literacy is that question about like, yeah, we can do it, but what's going to happen if we do? It's so hard because I think it's difficult in the world that we live in to slow down and be be more reflective because everything is running, I think, at a different cadence, a different pace. We've accelerated change and now we just want to run. But I, I want to go back, though, to something that you were talking about, I think, with, with David's question is that um, one of the things that I kind of dug into early, deeper, earlier, back when this uh, pandemic first started was scenario planning. You know, I, I'd read Adam Kahan's work and Pierre Walk and, you know, some of those, but not real deeply, just kind of more veneer reading. And, and one of the things I've been thinking about is how, how does that become part of the mindset with educators? Because I think we've always kind of worked around this kind of linear process of I set a vision, I set a mission, I set my goals, and I march forward towards this one future. And if I have to make some changes, maybe or maybe not, because this is our focus. So we're just going to march toward this. And now we live in a world where things are emerging. There's a lot more complexity. We, I, I believe we moved from complicated to much more complexity. And how, how does that become maybe a tool in thinking about how futures are emerging instead of thinking of one future, but different futures? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that's a great, I mean, that's definitely my experience as well, Glenn was like, I was not trained in like multiple futures for my schedule, you know, like that's just not a thing I learned when I was in grad school. And so I just, it's not something that I think as educators, we've been exposed to be quite frank. And I think one of the things that we did this summer, I'm trying to do my scrappy post-it, but we definitely did a two by two on the constraints. Um, And one constraint was looking at the economic impact of the pandemic. And the other constraint was looking at um, the health, right, of, uh, of the actual virus itself. Like, where was it going? Is it going to ramp up? Is it going to ramp down? And when we look at those two different fronts, what are the world's, what are the, what are the ways in which the world could actually evolve in, di- in different constraints? And we had a couple different scenarios that we work with educators. One is this idea that, like, we're in this, like, collapse where the pandemic is never ending, economic fallout. Um, we were looking at another scenario where, like, the vaccine gets really quick right? And people go back to work kind of normalcy. 
And then we were looking at this other area where it's like this kind of hybrid where we're sitting in this um, kind of slow recovery, slow piece. And as an educator and a principal and a um, designer, we have to design for all of those scenarios. Um, and it's another way of David, we're talking about parallel prototyping. It's actually thinking about, okay, what is gonna happen in the world? What would the world look like on these different um, parallel or kind of like cross functioning uh, pendulums, right? And what would that world look like from an economic perspective, um, from a social perspective? We often use some of the kind of futures kind of thinking around politics, social, economic, um, intellectual movements. I was a history teacher, so I go back to like my, my Persia, oh, like right. Right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> people, another way to think about, it, but technology fronts. And we start examining like, okay, in a world where economic viability is not accessible and arts movement happening, what does the world look like? And what do young people need in this moment? And so- And Laura, I think you're, I think you're touching on a, a lot of things that a lot of school superintendents and leaders have been going through for the last, how many months it's been. Absolutely. To your point, we've had how many schedules, how many schools am I running right now? Mm -hmm. you know, for schedule, hybrid, regular, in-person, out-person, all the other things. And then you talked about the political aspect that is involved in the community itself. You talked about the economic turmoil that goes into it. So like to your point, these are all things that are that we're living and breathing and designing as we go with you know, no training wheels, like David said, it's hundred miles per hour, no brakes, and we don't have the right answer. And no. it's, it's frustrating, and maybe you can help some people out here. It's frustrating because people are so used to that answer yeah. They're used to their normalcy that they've always been there before. Whereas we're doing the best we can possibly doing while designing while flying. That's so. right. And I think that's where the scenario piece, to some extent, I would say, you know, what we did this summer and what we're doing, uh, as Dave was asking, is actually like giving some language to it. Like, no, we're in this kind of scenario, and this is the fabric of this scenario. Like, you know what, parents are, you know, we have a lot of unemployment in our area. Um, and what does the needs then as designers, my question always goes, if we can figure out what the scenario is, and one of the things that we like to play is like a headline game, like what do you see in the newspaper? Because that is from a futures perspective, it's like sense making. Okay, what, how am I making sense of what's happening in the world right now? And I think a lot of us who are leading schools, we all want to get better at sense making understanding what's happening in our context so that we can actually get better, not at predicting the future, of course, right? But understanding the needs that we think might occur within our communities. And so a lot of the things that we did, we've been doing with educators now is like thinking about these different scenarios and then thinking about what are the needs of my community in this world? You know, what are the needs of my teachers and my students? And how do we in this scenario, in this world, in this futures, um, have an impact and stay true to the mission and vision of our school. And, and, and it's really interesting because I felt like for years, we feel the trickle of society kind of dripping into schools and we've kind of had to deal with it in different ways. But now it's kind of like someone just opened up the floodgate and said, everything's rolling in. You know, the digital disruption, the pandemic, all the things that come with it. And now it's like, so, you're looking at this future that's evolving in such different and emerging ways. And, and I think it's just been a mad scramble. And I think that the important thing you brought up is sometimes we don't even have language to deal with it. Mm -hmm. We don't. And I think one of the things we've learned in working again with scenario planning in schools is not because we have the right answer. It's not because it's like, oh, it's this scenario. 
But I think part of the, of going through the process of looking at three scenarios that might occur or four and thinking about what the needs are, there is this interesting thing about in a moment, I, what I noticed this summer and what I'm noticing this year um, is that, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and insecurity, right. And, and fear as a result of that. And so one of the things that we discovered in working with districts um, all over is that we can actually find some security in the process that we're unfolding, which is like understanding the scenario, thinking about needs, developing prototypes about all the things you just described and knowing that we can't, we may not have the they solution, but we have a process to come together to discover them. And that's where I think in moments of uncertainty where design plays a, such a powerful role because you know, watching what's happening today, there, there are ways forward, right? Without jumping to the solution. And I think there's something, um, you know, caring and also um, it's a safety net, if you will, for communities to think, oh, there's a process for us to do this together. And I think that brings, especially in moments of uncertainty, a lot of security um, and a feeling of, of safety. I just wanna add one question before David Jakes or just one comment, because I know David Jakes gonna ask a pretty heavy one in a minute. Like he normally does. He's, he's trying to go three for three tonight. Um, you know, you, you talk about that psychological safety, that emotional safety and so forth and what it may look like. You know, one of the things that I did right before the break was um, we sent a letter up to the state basically saying that I don't know how we're going to do standardized testing this year, mm. you know, with these students. And my staff, you know, looking at them in that regard, I basically told them that you know, we're, we're graded on a system one to four for teacher observations. And I basically said, every teacher is getting a four right now mm -hmm. for the entire year. You know, that's one less thing you need to worry about so you can concentrate on what needs to be going forward. So I applaud you for saying that. And that gives me a little bit more of a better feeling knowing that I'm supporting the teachers to try to give them, you know, something, one less thing to worry about while they're trying to worry about who's eating what food, mm -hmm. whose parents are unemployed, why aren't in the background on all these other different things and the economics and, you know, all the other stuff that goes with it. So thank you for mentioning all those. And I'm going to be sharing this with all my teachers later. So uh, great. All right, DJ, drop the heavy question like you normally do, please. Oh, Laura, are you ready? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> all right. Uh, so this question is, is, um, is, is based on a comment in the chat from, from Lawrence. Uh, in it, you know, he's Lawrence is talking about uh, mentioned that future futures literacy sounds like improving the ability of the imagination. Mm. So, you, you've been talking about scenario planning. You've been talking about futures thinking. You were talking about multiple parallel parallel iterative prototyping. Uh, you've been talking about design process. All that is predicated on within the context of a design process being able to have an imaginative kind of disposition and mindset. At this particular time, when we're driven into because of the pandemic uh, and in the things that are happening, at least in the United States, if everybody, you know, and I, I know we might be having global participants, but you know, this all applies to everybody, I guess. The question is, is given that, you know, and, and, and let me add one more layer to that, and with teachers that that, and I and I and I, I taught for 15 years, so I know this uh, to be a fact. You know, we've all got our units, right? Uh, we've got the things that we know are successful. And so the question is, is how do we, given this moment in time, how do we become more imaginative to be able to do these things? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, when you're, when you're, you know, I've used the design process now for a while and the design process itself is when, once you get into it, 
you develop a designer's mindset, which allows you to be more imaginative. But how do we, you know, in terms of um, a larger construct, how do we, what do we do to increase our imaginative potential? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And I think that, I mean, that's three for three. Yeah. <laughs> great question. But uh, I mean, there's an interesting thing that we know, though, I think what you're recognizing, Glenn mentioned, this question of psychological safety. So what we do know, right, neuroscience tells us in moments of, of insecurity or fear, right, it is tough to be imaginative. Like, we we, we, we go back to whatever is going to be the most secure and the most safe, right? And so, and here we're sitting in this moment where we're surrounded by that on every concept, right, whether it's civic engagement, right, economic, equity, this year has been on every front, right? Uh, uh, to some extent, like a really like fearful that like we are striving for psychological safety given the world that we're living in right now. And so the idea to be imaginative is actually quite, is quite daunting, right? In the moments that we're sitting in. Um, the thing that I think is kind of interesting and, and, and all of that is true. And again, going to my design parallel, but what's also true though this year, which I think is rather interesting is that we have seen moments, so many moments of imagination and creative thinking around how people are deploying laptops, how they've been feeding schools, how they've been like pivoting. I mean, for someone who has been invested in education technology, we have all become experts on different technologies or like it has taken us 10 years to get people to think about bringing laptops in a classroom. And this year we're like, we're like on 12 different platforms this year. And so our ability to, to pivot, right, this year, um, sadly, has been like challenged. And we have discovered, I think, some resiliency, I would say, and our ability to kind of play with like what we're capable of. And I think, you know, your question about like, I was a um, advanced placement history teacher. So there are a lot of requirements about like, that's all fine and good, but I have a test that my kids have to take. So I that constraint, I get. Um, I think one of the things that I think is really important that you're mentioning is this that we David Kelly talks a lot about, of course, is creative confidence is this idea of small wins. And I think when we think about, as you said, we get better at having a more imaginative mindset. When we actually take small steps. Um, I know some of you might be familiar with our stoke deck, which is like small kind of creative exercises. And part of the reason why we do those, um, they're joyful um, for folks watching me can send them to you, but um, they're joyful experiences, but they really get you into the mindset. But what they really do is provide um, educators and participants with a small place to fail, to think outside of the box without the risk of failure because there's no stakes involved. And so I think what you're saying, David, is like, how do we not just have an imaginative mindset, but how might we cultivate small moments, right? Where an imagination, where we can bring our imaginative self to it. So we can start cultivating what it feels like. Because as you said, like the more we do it, we get, it's just like running, we get better at it. And I think for folks this year who are not feeling it, what are the ways you can start doing it? Whether it's like turning, you know, drawing on post-its with your classroom or having students play Stoke games, whether it's, you know, using the Zoom or, you know, a lot of different ways where we can slowly be imaginative. And I guess my other piece on this, which I think is, you know, is a challenge is that I think educators bit large are super imaginative people. They wouldn't be educators if they weren't. That's why we all got into it, right? Is like, we're in this space of curiosity, of learning all the time. Um, 
And I think to some extent, you know, what we're noticing, what we noticed in the last, you know, 15 years is that the system that we're sitting in has actually like crushed that to some extent because of the requirements that are put upon us. And so one of the things that I think is really interesting is that to some extent, even though we've been in this moment where psychological safety is like at a paramount, we've also seen so much imagination amongst kids, amongst families on these things. So one of the questions I have for all of like for myself and for all of us is like, where did we see imagination this year? Cause we did it. And it would be really easy to just say that's like the pandemic and we pivoted, but we actually witnessed a lot of imaginative ways from people zooming, uh, figuring out ways to like zoom, zoom karaoke. You've seen it across lots of platforms and lots of ways. And so how do we like look at those stories of imagination that we have witnessed and experienced? And then how do we allow educators to find small ways to start? You know, this idea of bias toward action that we have at the D school, like start small. Um, because the more we can do small steps, um, you know, we can figure it out and get better at it. And, you know, I think one thing too on imagination is like this question and I saw in the chat too of like, you know, the US, I don't think applauds imagination until it's at um, scale, if that makes sense. Like we get, we love imagination when it makes a lot of money at the end and it's got this like scalable thing, but the process itself is often not applauded because there's a lot of failure involved in that. And I think one of the things that I, you know, I think in the US um, is that we really need to get better at really understanding the failure process and applauding those small steps because we know that like those small failures um, are the learning process, right? And it's part of the learning. And how do we like understand that and really like interrogate those about how we felt and what we learned from those um, as a way to kind of stoke imagination? Because those stories are failure is where is the birthplace of imagination. Right, what we learn from them actually propels us forward. Thank you much, great answer. Appreciate that. You want me to take this one? You wrap it up, Glenn. Yeah. So I grabbed this quote that you had, and um, and it spoke to me a little bit. And and I don't know if this goes out maybe to all educators, but I know it goes out to educational leaders. And and one of the quotes in one of your articles it says, "To be a designer is to be a steward of possibility." And you said, we search for outcomes that do not yet exist. And in doing so, we dive deep into the unexpected and the unknown. And what I've, what I've noticed is that we like to exploit the known, but diving into the unknown and the unexpected is often um, halted with, I don't have time for that because I need to get to this or I need to get to that. And that is a waste of my time because that is, I don't have time to explore because of what needs to get done. What's your thinking around that? Because I, I know it's incredibly important, but it's hard to get people to be open to that. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think there's another piece too on there of like, who has the privilege to go into the unknown, right? And who has the right now in the world right now with economic insecurity, um, racial injustice, like that is a privilege to go into the end because there are so many uh, things right at the front that actually are really important and in peril. And so, um, you know, I think part of it is this question, I think, of recognizing what is the unknown and, and really kind of to get a clearer sense of like what is actually known. One of the things we'd spend um, 
that we think a lot about is like spectrum thinking of like what's true what's not really true what's like way not true and where do we play within this spectrum of what's known versus unknown and I think when we think about diving into the unknown a simple way to think about it um, for me is thinking about assumptions and as we think about designers a key thing that designers play a lot is and thinking about is challenging our own assumptions about solutions or ideas we want to be surprised. So when we think about the unknown, another way to think about it is like, what assumptions do I hold about my young people, about my staff, about my community? Those are unknown elements. We, we can't begin to understand the complexities of our young people, right? They're, they're complex just like we are. And so part of being a designer in the K-12 space, right? is actually to challenge our own assumptions. Um, that is the unknown, right? Of what our parents are thinking, what our students are thinking and learning with them, right? Trying to understand that. And I think if we're, all of us are focused on like what it means to work in education, that to me is where the interesting work is, is like really challenging ourselves about what we know, <laughs> what we think we know and what our students are capable of. And so I, we, you know, that quote that's on our, on our, one of our websites, um, is really about thinking about assumptions and where innovation really might occur. It's always in the place you didn't see it um, or you didn't think. And I, you know, and I will say time and time again, I am always blessed because they always learn more from the students. They always have a better insight than I could have possibly imagined um, and often think of. And I think that is an area when we think about the unknown, I think that all of us, especially this year, can lean more into. If, what is the student experience? What is their unknown? What are they experiencing? What do they know? What do they don't know? And challenging, not only helping them challenge their own assumptions about the world, but also, um, you know, challenging ourselves about what we think we know about our communities and our schools. Thank you. You just dropped a lot of knowledge right there and a lot of head shaking, yes, on that, and a lot of thinking, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I love the aspect of, you know, listening to the kids and giving them that true voice. They're often the most neglected stakeholder in the entire group. And uh, you put them at the forefront there. And, you know, to think about what they're doing as a father and as an educator, think about what they're going through, you know, this past year, all the way up to yesterday and today, you know, it is just surreal. It's unique conversations that parents are having and teachers are having with these, these individuals and to hear from them, you know, it's just, um, like you said, there are so many assumptions and we have to push those assumptions aside, especially from the educational standpoint. Um, so you're working on a lot it's, and you're working on it in your background right now, you know, so uh, what is captivating your, your, your thinking right now and where do you see education going next? That's, a, that's another good, really great question. Um, you know, I mean, what I'm really captivated by, of course, obviously, is like the intersection of justice um, and design and, and kind of speaking to some of the chat members of like, how do we think about like all these complex challenges and how can design play a role in really thinking about um, equity and an inclusive society? Like, I'm just really fascinated by that. I'm reading a book called Design Justice right now, of like the intersections of co-designing and community and how do we do that? Um, and that's captivating my interest. Um, I am a person of many different interests, uh, not surprising. Um, so another area that I'm thinking a lot about um, because I've been, you know, as David knows, like diving deep into futures literacy and futures thinking 
is this like space for speculative fiction within K-12? Um, you know, being a history teacher and then also an English teacher, um, one of the things that I'm really kind of fascinated by, and I haven't seen it yet, is that we do a lot of like strategy stuff in schools. Like, hey, we're gonna like write the, the, the goals and strategic thinking and even scenario planning. And one of the things that I think is super interesting um, is what is the role that fiction or speculative fiction do for education to help us envision what these equitable futures might look and feel like. Um, I think I'm a movie. I don't know, but my head was like done during the break. And so I watched a lot of Netflix. Um, and so I get into movies and I'm like, wow, why do we get wrapped up in stories? Like all these kind of sci-fi kind of speculative fiction stories. And they offer visions of the future. And so so one of this is like, but one of the things I'm wondering about is how does speculative fiction where students are drafting and envisioning the future that we might embrace and see how can for that? And so I've been thinking a lot about that and nerding about that. I'm like, there's something there, the intersection of art and, and design that allows us to move beyond like the, here's my goal for the year. But here's the story that's 30 years from now that this student wrote about the world they're living in. And how do we use that story as an inspiration design forward? So that's, the, to me, that's one of the areas that I'm thinking about, um, in addition to technology. And uh, work, that's another passion of mine. Um, it's called REP. It's coming out very soon. Um, and REP stands for reputation represents. Um, it is a student-facing analog magazine that teaches young people about emerging technology um, and allows them to understand blockular technology. Um, and it's completely analog. It's a magazine uh, that students can write in and they design the first issue, hopefully in the next two months, six weeks, hopefully. Um, and it's about designing bots, speaking of like AI's question, um, and how do we help our young people become really better designer technology? I could keep it talking just, about just stuff there. Just a question. <laughs> Nathan Furr's work on leading transformation. What's the question? Have you heard, have you read Nathan Furr's work on transformation? Um, check yeah, it out because, because he brings in um, authors who, a lot of their process is really looking at um, science fiction mm -hmm. and he got a lot of pushback on it, but there's some people who found it a positive process of fiction along with strategy to um, make their organization see into the future in, in different ways. That's awesome, man. Yeah, send that to me. That would be great. Great. So I think we're pretty much coming up to the close of our hour. Or um, in your graces, we went through some Zoom technical difficulties as we <laughs> sat here. Um, but I can tell you that anyway, um, I am beyond thankful uh, to have been able to talk to you for the past hour. So thank you for everything you provided today. Thank you very much. It's, been, it's such a joy. Yeah, I'm such a fan. I've, I've, I mean, I follow you all on Twitter. I'm like, 
Glenn Jessica. Always reading. So I feel so honored just to have shared and chatted with you and, and learned with you. And I'm just so in, in, um, blessed and feel grateful to having an audio and just share wildly some of the ideas that are percolating within um, the lab and, and myself. So thank you. Yeah. And, and, and we're truly, and I feel blessed because I've been able to see your work over, you know, the years here and, and see what you're doing out of the K-12 lab and it's truly appreciated. So thank you for the work you do. All right, so thank you everybody for tuning in and wish you all a great day. Stay healthy out there and talk to you soon. Thank you.